Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are talking about the lore of winter, including the dark tales that they don't cover in the holiday movies. And these are the celebrations of the dead. They're the times, the testing of men through the bleak months of winter, and if one is not careful, sacrifice and danger. And we'll be right back to all of the dark shades of winter in just a second. We want to let you know where we can, where you can find us in person in the next few weeks. You can purchase tickets for all of our events at ParanormalScienceLab.com. And first, we'd like to thank everyone who came out to the Ritchie Mansion on, in Newtonia, Missouri on this past Saturday. It was a great turnout that really helped to preserve history. On November 19th, we actually have two events. First, in the afternoon, we will be at Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, signing books and talking about everything in the dark Ozarks. And it's free, by the way. And then the night of November 19th, we will be doing a tour and paranormal investigation of the Web City Public Library. Find all the details for the events at paranormalsciencelab.com. And Dark Ozarts t-shirts are now for sale at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. So what is the most shocking thing about the winter tales from lore and from the old beliefs? I don't know. Celebrating the dead, the risk of death yourself that Santa Claus was really a shaman or that he may have a dark counterpart, evil twin, if you will. <laughs> now that might be too many possible answers. Now we're going to tell you our favorites later in the show. Let's start uh, there as soon as we give a shout out to our great sponsors that help us bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone. We encourage everyone to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and their website, alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more, not to mention the location is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, it's also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. So Halloween is filled with lore about concealing yourself from the spirits of the dead. So when do we go from that to celebrating the dead? The old beliefs about winter really start with the day after Halloween. Yes, November 2nd is All Hallows Tide. Um, also called All Souls Day for those that are in purgatory in the Christian belief system. But it follows November 1st, which is All Hallows Day or All Saints Day. But the ideas predate Christianity. And in the past, there was a much closer connection to the living. So after harvest, we're transitioning into this time of remembrance and contemplation. But along with that comes 
a point that we really face our uneasy relationship with the dead. Yes, I mean, it's metaphorical as well as literal. Um, metaphorically, of course, we're dealing with the, the dead of winter and the passing of the harvest and perhaps lean months. But metaphorically, that's one thing. Literally, we still have to figure out how we feel about the dead, even if they are our beloved ancestors. That's a really, that is a really good point. And it is, as we often say with the Dark Ozark, sometimes there are no easy answers. Almost consistently, there are no easy answers. Uh, as I was watching the sunset the, and, the, and the moonrise um, this evening, I was contemplating the fact that the Ozarks consistently refuse to comply considering that I have my windows open and it is 77 degrees on the first week of November. And in so many ways, winter seems a long ways off, but mm -hmm. we both know that is not the case. We are teetering right on the edge where we're going to see a, a, a sudden shift, I, I would imagine. And the Ozarks are unique in the sense that the from a from a uh, from a from a settler standpoint, we are heavily influenced by uh, Scots Irish, by Irish, mm -hmm. by German, by Anglo-Saxon immigration uh, mm -hmm. from you know beginning in the 1820s, and and prior to the 1820s, uh, French, yes, uh, as well. But this is not the upper Midwest. This is not New England. This is not Canada. We are in a, in a unique uh, wheel or hub that is essentially upper south transitioning into deep south as you get further into Arkansas and then right on the cusp of the Great Plains. Very true, but I, I think that convergence of geography also uh, sets the stage that sometimes we get surprised and we get Canadian weather <laughs> blow in. And um, one of my you know, favorite uh, uh, memories uh, joking about that kind of weather happened a number of years ago uh, when I was supposed to be in court early in the morning and it was a negative 19 with about eight inches of snow on the on the ground and they decided not to cancel court and I couldn't help but rib the every other person that worked in my office for staying in bed while I had to trudge out in negative 19 weather uh, but it's it's just a reminder that winter and perhaps the uh, gods and goddesses of uh, old lore can uh, poke us with a sharp stick every once in a while. Very, very true. And <clears throat> I, it really doesn't seem like it was that long ago. And in reality, it wasn't just a handful of months back uh, as we were, were kicking off the, the 2022 season of Dark Ozarks that I was sitting on this couch and the house was creaking because it was well below zero and stayed that way for about a week back uh -huh. January. February, along with plenty of snow, and was not the coldest that I have been, but 
the coldest that I have been for sustained number of days down here. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, um, and winter just can raise its head that way. And there's no wonder that there's ritual lore associated with it. And something that I, I think is interesting to contemplate, and it's almost a challenge just in terms of uh, retention of lore versus loss of lore. I'm going to mm -hmm. reference back to one of my favorite <clears throat> episodes last winter in regards to uh, history and lore of German <clears throat> settlers mm -hmm. coming into the into the Ozarks. And in, in many cases, and some of the some of the social sociological or anthropo anthropological um, cursory surveys mm -hmm. would go through, talk to a number of people, and essentially, I'm going to paraphrase, say, wow, there, there's no, lots of German last names, but everybody is so ridiculously American, there's no German lore left. Right. And there's no German culture. And it is a testament to the uh, Americanizing mm -hmm. of, uh, of various waves of 19th century European settlement. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that said, I think that there are also, as, as with my own family, layers of sometimes even unspoken lore, unspoken foods, uh, cuisine, ways of doing things, ways of life, rhythms of life, that a skilled uh, socio-anthropologist could analyze effectively, as opposed to saying, up, oh, nothing to see here, just another Sonic at the corner. Uh, and that's <laughs> <Very> true. <laughs> And, and and my family's the same way, you know, when you start thinking about it. Although I don't think to me, most people don't think in those terms or or just think that everything they do is just like everyone else down the block. Very true. So it's it, particularly in terms of the lore that we're talking about, there are <clears throat> layers of lore that have been temporarily or contemporarily lost as mm -hmm. settlement became highly Americanized, particularly after World War One or during World War One. Yes, there, there, there was a lot of um, white, not whitewashing, but just making things bland to fit in for a lot of immigrants. And, and for Sometimes I, I think for for positive reasons, sometimes mm -hmm. for negative reasons. There. That said, I have to believe that uh, a number of the uh, early immigrant families, uh, German families in particular, where, of course, much of our winter lore that we're talking about tonight 
directly ties to Germanic, Scandinavian, and Anglo-Saxon, as well as Scots and Scots-Irish. Yes, Northern Europe, basically. Very, very much, yes. So that, say, the families, the German families coming over to Missouri and to Arkansas in the 1840s would in so many cases had to have been bringing this lore with them Mm -hmm. but over the generations as each following generation became more americanized there was more of an adoption of contemporary american holiday culture and a slow erasure uh, or perhaps a more more rapid erasure Mm -hmm. of the the original lore so we do see remnants of of these things particularly in places like the the german settlements in uh in pennsylvania i know carried over some what we think of as as uh, pagan uh or highly old world traditional uh practices so particularly in relationship to mumming to uh, the mummers mm-hmm. and the and the the particular uh particular name for what i classify as peasant krampus as opposed to mountain krampus and i can't think of what his name is right at the moment but he's well known because i think in addition to krampus he showed up on the office at one point on somebody's mm-hmm. sweater <laughs> uh, that but, but again is it's variations of the same theme you know yes uh the the northern uh midwest also um mm-hmm. the area that a lot of this lore uh remained and remains strong even now and i i can't help but um, strongly imagine so it is conjecture but i suspect we'll find it once you start digging that a lot of this lore was able to be retained in the countryside and the peoples around places like Herman, Missouri. Mm -hmm. I think so, as well as the fact that a lot of this is retained, a lot of these uh, traditions are retained through storytelling, through oral tradition, uh, just as, as we try to bring things to people right here on the Dark Ozarks, we talk about things that your grandmother would have talked about your great grandmother, your great grandfather, and that do not get told nearly as often now. They don't, and and <clears throat> because of the fact that I believe these things resonate within a on an elemental level, that these are these are archetypal ideas for those who are familiar with Carl Jung, and these are elemental qualities that you can seal yourself away in a modern society you can seal yourself away but only for so long and only at one's own peril because it it comes with a ultimately a a a self-imposed ignorance and or a disrespect for the natural universe around us the potentially the multiple dimensions the multiple planes of understanding the multiple planes of energy that appear to exist that all 
universally speak into our experiences because we are part of that process. And when we separate ourselves, as I said, we do so at our own, at our own peril from uh, either becoming blinded to our own, our own selves, or and or becoming blind to that around us, a lack of respect for the energies around us, a lack of respect in some cases for the natural world around us. And I find it interesting, and maybe people might be surprised that there is a long tradition of gods and goddesses associated with winter itself. I think we're used to these concepts with gods and goddesses from the pagan world uh, being associated with certain characteristics or certain emotions. Gods of war, gods of love, gods, you know, goddesses of the hearth, those kinds of things. Um, but the mythology and lore that often is taught in school and we discuss a lot, and that tends to be in society, Greco-Roman mythology, doesn't cover a lot of the deities associated with seasons that's a really good that is a really good point and <clears throat> i i think that our perspective and understanding of paganism and of mythology is not exclusively but is heavily influenced by greco-roman mm -hmm. uh, culture and even even to the point, and I I stand by. We're getting ready to go on a tangent. Hang on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Should I take I, notes? <laughs> yes. I, I I'm at time. So I understand some of the whys and wherefores because the Greeks and the Romans had the decency to write everything down. And so consequently, we, we have a vast body of written lore uh, associated with, with Greco-Roman mythology. And as has been noted many times, the, the Celts did not have a written language. And so we are bereft of many stories, not all, because fortunately many were encapsulated within oral storytelling tradition and managed to be preserved at various times, uh, really beginning in the 1700s and sometimes earlier, uh, certainly later, thank you, W.B. Gates, uh, but, and, and from what we can tell, uh, Welsh literature in the form of the Mabinogion uh, really goes back a long way, mm -hmm. but these are limited compared to the Greco-Roman compendium. Similarly, we see a same issue with Scandinavian lore. We're, we're actually quite, I'm quite grateful for the fact that we, we have comparatively mm, complete Scandinavian works, but predominantly in the prose edda and right. we're, we're looking, you know, the Edas looking at 
and, and I find this interesting in, in many cases that the old world beliefs and, and similarly dating back to around the seventh century uh, in the Germanic, for the Germanic peoples, the Christianization, which was in some cases overlaying the pagan beliefs and in other cases stamping out the pagan beliefs, though the Christian monks, the scribes were typically the only ones writing down the belief structure in the form of documentation of culture. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have the prose edas. That's why we have, um, not, fortunately not, the Mabinogian was later than that, but um, I'm trying to think of the Welsh monk who was writing everything down about Ireland. So we have these, uh the the these records but they are are not as complete as uh, greco-roman and i forgot what my tangent was so perhaps it will come back later <laughs> did we dodge a bullet i'm not sure <laughs> sure you did uh, sure you all did <laughs> even i don't know where i'm going sometimes so well uh so we're kind of talking about gods and goddesses of winter. Uh, yep. There are some common themes across Northern Europe yes. Uh, yes. in this regard. Do you have a favorite? Oh, uh, well, I do find it interesting that in, I'm, I'm split between two favorites, uh, a Germanic favorite and a Celtic favorite, specific a Scot Scottish favorite. And in both cases, goddesses, uh -huh. from, from what we can tell, uh, the Scottish um, lore around the Caliph, mm -hmm. and then also a, a winter queen, goddess, crone, maiden, goose. Or duck. Or duck. Uh, uh, figure who comes by many names. Uh, the, the one that I typically hit land on is Verkta uh, mm -hmm. or Perkta, but there, there's, she has a number of names within the sort of the, the cultural Germanic ecosphere. And in, in both cases, they're, they're very different. I, I, I don't see, uh, I don't see that anyone could make an effective argument that there's somehow a conflation, that there's a common root for these two goddesses. No, but, but there, is, there is a little bit of symmetry as far as the consequences of their action, I guess I would say. That's a good point. And that, well, and I, I suppose I should, I should, I'll probably have to recant everything that I just said, because we do also have... <laughs> have a weird consistency in the triad goddess mm -hmm. of maiden mother crone. Very true, very true. But uh, this, in, in this connection, the emphasis is more on uh, maiden and then crone. Correct. <clears throat> Correct. And I, I think that it is reasonably fair um, 
to for for the the mother aspect uh, of the winter goddess to take a back seat in this regard to to recede because of the harshness of winter it's very difficult to associate the the difficult to survive winter with motherhood that's um, that's true and and, and could come across as fatalistic and, and perhaps bad omens if, if you did is my guess um one of my one of my favorite uh, imagery and motifs that is used is that hiding herself as stones agreed and we're, we're this is something that appears to be specific to the Kalach, uh, mm-hmm. to, in scottish lore now a, a mother aspect of the Kalach is that in, in some bits of lore, she actually created Scotland. Yes. So, yeah, so there is a, a, that, that uh, homage to the third branch of the triad, so. Yes, and for people who might not be familiar, I find it a particularly insightful that the mother maiden crone triad is one person, one mm-hmm. um, multiple aspects of the myth, multiple aspects of the goddess. And it speaks to, it speaks very heavily to the seasons, first of mm-hmm. all. It speaks very heavily to aspects of one's personal journeys, plural, but it also speaks very insightfully and very archetypally into the human experience, the larger cycle of birth, life, and death. I, I agree. And it just, to me, it, it's just emblemic of incorporating the, the trials of the human experience with the seasons as allegory. And um, and I think you have you. It makes the most sense because you have to think of this as being a part coming from Scotland, particularly the mountains. It's often associated with the mountains uh, in the Highlands. That this could be a very harsh land with harsh winters, and, and it, so it is. It could is. be harsh too. And that it, that is also something that we see with so much of of Scottish folklore. There is a harshness to the lore itself, preparing the people for circumstances. <laughs> many many circumstances, not and not just the the elements of nature, but just the history of mm-hmm. the land, the history of Scotland, and. Well, there is there is there is a reason that uh, for the for the uh, the adage "stubborn as a Scot," and I think it has a little bit to do with that. <laughs> I, I I think so as well. And <clears throat> there there is something that from from an elemental standpoint and from an introspective standpoint that's very powerful. I find this term. Really, really provocative. The caliph is a divine hag and ancestor of the land. 
associated mm -hmm. with storms and winter. And it, as we dig into these things, you find the aspects of, in this case, what we're calling uh, a goddess to really go beyond our, our very simplistic or single faceted perceptions of, and I'm, I'm not going to sully the more nuanced uh, mythological lore that was associated with the Greco-Roman gods, but I am going to sully our simplistic view of these singular personalities. The Kalach is vastly more than a single person personality, perhaps mm -hmm. having, having a bad day, throwing a temper tantrum, and consequently we get a snowstorm. This is grand and vast and terrifying. Yes, and, and with, a, with an interdependent uh, relationship in some respects to humanity, uh, one example being that being the source of the right of kings to rule their land. Um, yeah. um, and I love the imagery, and maybe that says something about me, but um, <laughs> riding a, she rides a wolf, holds a hammer or a wand of human flesh, and sometimes yeah. attaches human skulls to her clothes, which is, is certainly um, imagery that we would, modern minds would associate more with Halloween than the winter. Very true. But something that is very important for us to separate ourselves from is the pastiche and the quite frankly the the fragile artifice of modernity that is that that we call mm, aspects of our holiday tradition and of course i am living just across the bridge from branson where we have two seasons christmas and not christmas <laughs> and there's of course a lot of positives to uh, to existing within the the sphere of uh, of an entertainment and tourism center but at the same time there is something that is multifaceted and powerful that speaks to a larger human experience something that we deal with a lot today when tragedy occurs is the question of, and, and I consider this two sides of the same coin. Oh my goodness, in a, in, a, in a decent, good society, how could this happen? In a Christian society, how could this happen? Or in a modern society, a modern sanitized society, how could this happen? I think our, our much more ancient and in some cases, vastly more sophisticated cultures, we would not have found individuals blindsided by the difficulties and the tragedies of life because there was a much more complex and nuanced understanding of 
essentially the the cosmology of tragedy or the cosmology of suffering and difficulty because life because that's life right and when individuals were brought up with these complexities through the translation of lore Mm -hmm. from being having been brought up with these complexities from the time they were old enough to listen to the stories that there was a sophistication in many cases a sophistication of understanding a sophistication of acceptance of tragedy and acceptance of loss a sophistication and a, and a resilience to move forward and you could argue that the Scots-Irish and the German and Anglo-Saxon settlers brought that resilience with them into a new world and a new land uh, applied it with an increased abundance of provision and then created what is essentially an unbelievably cushy, uh, largely, largely, caveat, disclaimer, asterisk, uh, hardship-free existence in which when bad things do happen, we're suddenly blindsided and, uh, you know, a puddle on the floor going, I don't understand how this could have happened. And in some degrees, I have to imagine that our ancestors are looking at us and either laughing or rolling their eyes. And, and that's a nice, that is a nice segue into kind of going back to where we started of celebrating the dead, that part of this season of, of the dark winter is celebrating the dead and our relationship with the dead, particularly our ancestors. And I think that that layered and nuanced uh, association with tragedy, with hardship, uh, with the fragility of existence uh, had more uh, of a communal meaning in the context of there was a reason behind it and the, and the tragedies that have befallen in the past to our ancestors and everything served a purpose and part of that purpose was for them to guide us and to continue guiding us. Yes, and that is something that it appears really began to be lost with the industrialization of Europe, partly Mm -hmm. through the Industrial Revolution, the original uh, following post-Enlightenment. That, and, and was something that, interestingly enough, the Grimm brothers were Wilhelm and, and Jacob were documenting from an anthropological standpoint in the late 1700s, early 1800s in Germany, because they were looking at the loss of peasant lore and peasant culture. Mm-hmm. And it would be another 10, 15 years after that, that Germans were settling, for example, Herman, Missouri. And yeah and bringing some of that with them, which I find really beautiful. And then of course, now we're so many years removed, that was the old days, but there was, and I'm, I'm gonna make a, a cross tie between Appalachia, Upper South, Ozarks, bluegrass music, folk music, and then back to the ancient Germanic 
uh, paganism. So that's going to be a weird circle. Here we go. And something that we see in uh, a lot of, of upper south or a southern mountain culture was a situation in which there was the ancestral quote unquote the the family homestead in the mountains and the in many cases when a loved one died they would be buried right there on the farm oh yes well I mean, we, we were recently at the Ritchie Mansion in Newtonia, Missouri, and literally the family cemetery is 20 feet from the front door. <laughs> yes. In the front yard, not even the backyard, the front yard. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's where you put your family. That's and right. Something that, uh, well, and, and I'm, I'm going to, you know, again, I think that many of these traditions are run counter to modernity. I remember one of my sister's good friends uh, from, from high school who was from Japan and was honestly quite horrified at the idea of going to a cemetery and walking over dead people because it was, it was you know, and, and but coming back to the, the family, you know, I'll, I'll, stay on, I'll stay on task. Josh will stay on task. Uh, coming to, so the, these long traditions, so for example, of a very sentimental Tin Pan Alley, turn of the century, turn of the, the 19th to 20th century, sentimental songs, which later, 40 years later, would become bluegrass ballads, mm -hmm. were often, first of all, they were often centered around death, but they were yeah. often centered around leaving the old home place and having to leave for example a parent or a child's grave behind mm -hmm. and this is a theme that has largely been lost in terms of its heartbreak and tragedy because we have to my knowledge all but exclusively transitioned to public cemeteries where no matter where you might move to, you will always be able to go back to your loved one's resting place if they're buried in the cemetery. Right, and if you sold the farm, you might not be able to if the, if the new owner doesn't let you. Um, yes. Now, um, you're right, we, we have lost this. And I, think, and I think the fact that we've lost this is one reason that um, I'm gonna give a, a pop culture uh, context uh, example here and I think the, because we have lost that connection is why the scene in the movie is so poignant but in Unforgiven at the end of the movie when um, when uh, the the dead wife's mother comes from the east coast to try to find her family um, and all she finds is her daughter's grave um, and some vague stories of where her grandchildren may have gone. Um, I think one reason that that um, has such an effect on the audience is it is a stark contrast to our sense of public burial and public access. Um, 
I see it a lot in events when, when we talk about cemeteries that have been moved or um, or perhaps uh, repurposed, but the body's not moved. And just the the hor abject horror that people experience, they cannot conceive of this. And it's it's a illustration of that. And I did not mean to. No, you're good. I think that, that <laughs> no, that's, that's that. I think that's an excellent addition within that process. And something that was a surprise to me when I started digging in to the research. And this ties to Germanic culture. It also ties to Celtic culture in continental Europe. Mm -hmm. Celtic, the many people do not realize that the Celts had for hundreds of years a thriving culture on the north side of the Alps. And many of the things that we know about the Celts comes from Roman accounts interacting, either trading or in combat against Celtic tribes. I was going to say, the Romans knew they were there. <laughs> yes, yes. They had... <laughs> Uh, just on the north side, of, on the northern slopes of the Alps, northern facing slopes of the Alps, incredible region that these ancestral farmsteads had burial mounds of their ancestors mm -hmm. going back time immemorial. And the idea that a family homestead might have had that land and been farming that land for century upon century and that these burial mounds of your great 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 grandfather could be outside the back door could be between the house and the barn mm -hmm. and that these burial mounds and the lore associated with the mounds now something that to me is very encouraging and positive and heartwarming is that unlike the cultural uh, chasm that occurred with the much of the destruction primarily through disease as well as war of Native American peoples mm -hmm. uh, around the the point of a white settlement uh, and in addition to, and, and also I think it, it bears a point that there was also a cultural abyss that took place prior to white settlement mm -hmm. uh, or even white involvement because we have, for example, here, the mound builder culture Mm -hmm. And by the time that white settlement arrives to make records that we have today, the, the interaction was with the Osage, who were not the mound builders. Right. And, and the mound builders have been gone for hundreds of years. And... Yes. So, and we don't know why. We don't right. know. We, we can't speculate. But clearly there was a culture that preceded the Native American cultures that European settlement found. Yes. And that, that previous culture, the mound builder culture, uh, who created 
for example, Spiro Mounds, uh, Cahokia, et cetera, so many mounds throughout the vast swaths of Middle America, Middle North America, were gone. And so there, there was a divide. Now, something that seems very consistent with much of Native American lore from, from Osage to Cherokee to Delaware, et cetera, was a deep respect for the existing mounds and understanding that this was a very spiritual place. It was a very important place, but it also with the understanding that that was an alien or pre-foreign culture for them. Right. Which they viewed as with a lot of supernatural activity going around as well. Yes. And so now coming back to the, that Northern Alpine farmstead mounds that there was not that break there was not that schism schism in in lineage and so you could have as late as the 1700s or 1800s you could still have a family farm that the ancient mounds were still associated with the current landowners and land farmers that to me that is really powerful and then additionally there's something that happens with that mound lore or the burial mound lore on the farmstead that seems consistently important, but goes against modern sensibility, which is there is a conflation between ancestor spirit, well, ancestor to ancestor spirit to poltergeist activity. Mm-hmm to grave lights, to elves, to yeah. house elves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, 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 um, it, it's very cyclical that um, you have the, the, the dead, the ancestors somehow watching over, interacting with the living um, on a very, day-to-day real sense so that for these people it was not storytelling it was not um folklore it was reality that what could be happening in your house could be related to that you know your ancestors that might go back 50 generations on that land very very powerful stuff and also brings in a couple of interesting things in terms of nuance and I, I'm going to jump forward to you know where, where we're going with this and I, I find this deeply challenging but also really <laughs> wonderful we have the this artifice or pastiche image of for example Christmas elves and I, I love challenging individuals with the reality that the, the foundational elements of the Christmas elf is a dead ancestor. Mm-hmm. It's great grandpa. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so to speak. And, and now... <laughs> 
there there's there's a couple of complex nuances that i really like because once you start wrapping your head around this you realize that this is a representational of essentially of a of a guardian spirit mm -hmm. that appears to manifest itself at times in a corporeal way mm -hmm. and that the purpose of the spirit being Mm -hmm. is to ensure the respect of the farm yes the the continued integrity physical integrity of the the land and the legacy being passed on continuity and, yes and, and with that comes the importance of respecting the livestock, respecting the animals, respect, respecting the many faceted elements of the farm that have existed since time immemorial and respecting that, that not only does it exist, but it is well cared for, that the, the, the animals are well fed, that the barn is well kept, that the kitchen is cleaned, that everything is in order again speaking to uh you know a, a quite frankly a german need for orderly neatness yes that, <laughs> that i can i can appreciate it probably explains the uh, my my inner dichotomy because i'm i'm part celt and i'm part german so part well, so of am me, I, so. <laughs> part, part of me wants everything in order and part of me just constantly creates chaos <laughs> guilty is charged as well so <laughs> it's a it's a unique unique largely american creation and i'm i'm not sure what that says to the larger whole but this uh this idea that if if things are not kept properly there's mm -hmm. going to be hell to pay exactly and you know there's i, I think for for people hearing this and maybe kind of hearing this aspect of, of Northern Europe for the first time, um, an analogy would be how the, the that sort of very popular view in North America is of the relationship of Native Americans to the land. That yes. they that Native Americans had had a unique um, tie to the land and respect um that um fostered um prosperity not only for themselves but of the land and animals um but really this is really kind of the same thing there, there's Very some similar. Strong, strong points of correlation and i like that because it speaks to a common a commonality in humanity yes and that i think that it is a misstep to uh, associate more ancient sophisticated practices with individual people groups as opposed to saying no if you go back far enough there there's you can see points of of intersection mm -hmm. from from many different directions the the larger issue uh, if we if we really want to get um you know down to it and make everybody <laughs> mad 
Uh, <laughs> we're, we're looking at, at industrialization. We're mm-hmm. looking at modernity and urbanization too. Yes. And the, 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 what I, what I would classify as the, the larger, mm, <clears throat> uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? I do have a word that I'm looking for. Um, homogenization yes. of culture and what I would classify as the ethic of industrialization, the ethic of, of conformity. Yeah. And, and those, the, those ethics of conformity have at times picked up various metaphysical and religious elements to get their point across if it was useful. I think that is a, an interesting aspect. But mm-hmm. it's what we're, what we're largely looking at is the spread of civilization according to the image of the Roman Empire. And, and the inheritors of the legacy, yes. 100%. The, the idea that the, the, the concept of the idea, uh, as well as the importance of the grid, placing mm-hmm. everything within a grid, which again, has benefits. The aqueducts yes. have benefits. Running water has benefits. Uh, Warming is a wonderful thing. Yes. <laughs> so are streets. <laughs> it is. It is. So it's important to understand all of this within a, within a complex, nuanced, complex and nuanced viewpoint. But along with that comes severe homogenization. And it creates, essentially it creates its own weather pattern of ethic. And mm-hmm. we, we see that, we see that applied and the success and structure inherent to it also creates its, its own force of nature, so to speak, from a sociological perspective. And so the, the Roman empire might collapse, but let's face it, the Plantagenets picked it back up and, uh, and then, you know, we move forward to the, to the age of empire. Mm-hmm. And we continue to see it perpetuated in various with various masks. Right. I mean, but it's very the same principles. And and the same grid. What they can't get away from is uh, is the shape. <laughs> the squares, <laughs> rectangles. <laughs> Which brings um, us to the Borg. <laughs> Oh, the Borg with, with snow scattered on it, huh? <laughs> it's <laughs> the Borg inside a Christmas snow globe. Yeah, I like it. Although, um, this does kind of bring us to, I think, Annette's sort of big motif, and, and she's gone by various labels, but I think most people in a, will be more familiar with her in the Grimm Brothers version as a snow witch. Yes. And certainly just in terms of, of a cyclical aspect, uh, Berkta, mm-hmm. the snow witch um, or snow sorceress, Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen, all of these elements tend to tie together. And modern audiences 
would be most familiar with C.S. Lewis's work and The Winter Witch of Narnia. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's elements of her in so many of the dark tales that we, we, we like to, uh, to tell and now put into movies. The Huntsman is a recent example that uh, um, it comes from the same lore. Correct. And certainly the, the ice cold evil queen. Yes. Uh, even if there is not a specific winter motif. So referencing back to original Disney animated film Snow White and the queen mm -hmm. who becomes the crone. Right. Um, and, you know, if you want to go forward, you know, in the adaptation, but certainly uh, in that same vein, would if, if you look at, say, Willow, um, the evil right. queen is, is mm -hmm. certainly that cold, dark queen. So, and I'm, I, I want, I'm very curious as to your thoughts. One, one of our reference points in our material actually comes from FolkloreThursday.com. Um, mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, the top 10 snow queens and winter hags from around the world. And they're, they're, the article leads with a contemporary thought which is that, and this is the quote, powerful women are often depicted as dark, cruel, and calculating and associated with winter. Now, to me, this, that is a very um, current contemporary viewpoint mm -hmm. that what I would potentially counter is that our previous, you know, pre-industrialization societies are, are associating, are creating a very deep archetypal motif in regards to winter and that it is perhaps less sophisticated of us to see this as villainous as more as simply reality. That's true, that's true, but you know, from, you know, the lens of the times that we li live in and have lived in for, you know, really since industrialization, I think that strong, you know, and this may make some people mad, but strong women are often seen as a threat. Um, whereas uh, in these traditional tales, that strong woman was necessary. Mm -hmm. She carried, you know, her strength and, you know, whether you want to look at it as cruelty or harshness or rigidity was necessary to get the community or the broader group through the winter. Um, Absolutely. And um, that was, you know, that was expected. Uh, but Again, as you mentioned, as you get to enlightenment and um, uh, and really as the as as the church becomes more and more masculine dominated, 
that harsh, rigid, strong woman can be seen as a, as a threat. A good example of that would be Elizabeth I. Um, and certainly, you know, portraying herself as a virgin, which certainly, let's realistically, was not the case, um, refusing to marry. Um, because it was a way to preserve her standing. Yes. And whereas a thousand years earlier, the idea that the feminine could be strong and rigid was accepted. And, and as, as a part of a multifaceted archetypal whole. Yes, that, that's one one aspect of a personality. I mean, that's that's mm -hmm. one way to look at the triad is that you have different aspects of a personality. We all have our sides and, and we can certainly have our angry side or our stubborn side when needed or resolve or soft feminine side. And that's all one person. Yes. And, and, and I think that, <clears throat> yeah. uh, you know, coming coming trying to distill that down to simplify that down mm -hmm. is is you know what society does that at its own peril it does it's uh simplicity um simplicity often becomes a double-edged sword because people start believing it yes and, and I think one of one of the one of the aspects that oftentimes both sides of the of the of the the contemporary argument miss. Mm -hmm. So coming back to this, you know the this this particular article, um, you know that the 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 winter witch is depicted as dark, cruel, and calculating. Mm -hmm. A a more sophisticated read on that what could potentially be yes why do you think that's bad right sometimes <laughs> some, sometimes that has that that has has to happen um and if it and it's necessary for the people to survive the winter then you could you could make an argument that not only is it not bad but it is necessary and then take even a further step and say that it is good mm -hmm. which moves us into that nuance of uh, of understanding and it also starts shedding some light onto aspects of the for example the the grim grim's brothers storytelling in the fact that the quote-unquote cruelty so mm -hmm. one of the things that is notable about perkta is that if you're a hardworking child, you're you're fine. You might even end up with a with a silver coin in your shoe, right? But if you're a lazy brat, your life's on the line, right? And and what and what people don't realize is that this idea of this of the of the rigid, harsh queen of winter, basically. Uh, we, we still reiterate that it comes out of our mouths every year, you know, with, you know, oh, you'll get a lump of coal in your stocking, things like this. Um, this is the origin of these things is that um, 
you 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 do your role for the greater group for the larger group and you get rewarded and if not it you know you you get something you don't want now granted in some cases it it could be uh, as far as slitting bad children's stomachs open and stuffing them with straw which yes. gives scarecrow a different um connotation but i uh, honestly that's my favorite part of the Berkta legend yeah me too and and, <laughs> and uh and i love telling that at krampus uh, mm -hmm. and, and consistently the response from the audience is is horror is horror mm -hmm. and then now coming back as a, as a point counterpoint in terms of uh modern culture versus traditional culture if in a modern horror movie the character is a shrouded half winter goose crone that creeps across shuffles with its giant goose foot shuffles across the 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 floor at midnight uses her magic to uh, to enchant the household into slumber and then slits open one of the child children's stomachs empties its his or hers entrails into a bucket stuffs mm -hmm. them full of straw and stones and sews them back up and lets them grow cold and dead in the early morning hour light that's the that's the villain mm -hmm. that's the uh, that's that's the Freddy Krueger. That's the Jason. Yeah. That's the the, the Michael evil witch. Yes, and without and and this is you know I keep coming back to this idea that we don't have complex nuance in terms of our lore to explain our our to do a better job of explaining the reality around us. That in traditional lore if you're not being a horrible person who is putting your entire community at risk because that's the implication of the lazy child in this case right that if you are not doing that this same being might appear to you when you are lost in a snow covered forest and lead you to safety appearing as a young girl Yes. Um, it also puts a lot more of the onus and responsibility on the person rather than the trope. Um, yes. We, our, our modern sensibility is everyone, everyone should be protected. Right. Regardless and yes. any yeah. harm is is horrible um but again it's sort of the carrot and the stick is that there that, you know there are consequences and a lot of our pop culture and our sort of our modern lore uh kind of brushes aside the notion of consequences of your own behavior um what 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 is shown as the horror is suffering consequences of someone else's behavior yeah yeah agreed and and there's, there's that 
and I think that it comes largely from the the benefits of modernity. That's right. Children don't have don't have to contribute to the household. They don't have, you know, um, uh, helicopter parenting and endless uh, extracurricular activities are seen as virtues in themselves. And and whereas in times past that could have threatened the the survival of the entire family or village depending yes and, and the 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 idea the the two ends of the spectrum of this out of control self-entitlement as opposed to if you don't toe the line you are a liability to us all yes and uh, even even though it's difficult, like coming back to the story of Hansel and Gretel, the idea is that the parents are starving. And so <laughs> somebody's got to not eat. Yeah. And in this case, it's going to be not the children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and another thing, I, you know, and we've discussed this before, but what a lot of people don't realize about that story is it's ba- it is based in historical fact. It's the Great Famine. Mm-hmm. Um of the 14th century that people were starving. So they did leave people in the in the woods to starve because um, you might get one or two people through, but you're not getting four or five through. Yes. And it's, it, it's a horrifying thought. It is a very horrifying thought. Um, but it also uh, counter and counterpoint shows however stressed we may be in our modern society, um, there are very few times that we are faced with the dichotomies that people faced even 500 years ago. Agreed. And weirdly enough for me, there, there's, a, there's a resonating point of hope because quite frankly, none of us would be here if our ancestors hadn't managed to survive. Exactly, exactly. They somehow came through this and, and um, these harsh lessons somehow got us here mm-hmm. and as as also in terms of carrying with us a uh, uh resonating thread of darkness and evil um a lot of us are here because somebody long ago in the past did something probably really awful to make sure that they were the ones who made it through yes well and people don't want to think about that but you know that happened a lot it, it had to have uh, mm-hmm. at various points yes not mm-hmm. all the time but at various points yes and yeah. and, and oh, you know, the, the, just the idea that all you know at, at, at these points at these points that oftentimes we're looking back very nostalgically and sentimentally and saying oh couldn't we get back to this time and for me it's usually talking about the fact that there was more sophisticated mm, cosmology at work at the yeah. same time, people in those times, if they were forward thinking, were going, how on earth do we make things better so we are not struggling just to survive? How do we, how do we make things easier each generation? How do we make things easier to get us to this point today? And perhaps my takeaway you know, in a larger sense is enjoy and embrace modernity and, and all of the comforts of that, but not let myself get too comfortable still push myself 
um, avoid a sense of self-entitlement, remain as humble as possible, work as hard as possible, and, you know, and, and try to develop a, a complex and reasonably accurate cosmology. Yes, and, and that's all we can do. I mean, yeah. in, in, the, in these contests. Speaking of being reflective and um, uh, nostalgic, how about Krampus? My favorite winter Christmas demon. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and for people who might wonder, yes, I have several, but Krampus tends to be at the top of the list. That <laughs> I can vouch for this. Yeah, I know you can. And I, I, I have a special place in my heart for Krampus. And in part because, mm, I'll let y'all in on a little secret, I, sometimes I am Krampus. Yes. <laughs> and when I, when I open my closet right next to my Cronunos antlers, Krampus issues are looking at me. So there's that too. But... Krampus, Krampus is heavily misunderstood, not heavily, not misunderstood within the context of our conversation this evening, but misunderstood mm -hmm. in the larger, uh, a larger mm, conversation uh, and is existing, fortunately, or I would say fortunately, has, has begun to penetrate into pop culture, into mm -hmm. sort of the, the milieu of consciousness. And... It, really because really even saying a demon is a, is a bit of a misnomer it is and i, and I think the pop culture um <clears throat> visualization right now is that he is a demon very very correct and as much as i love the film and i do love the film uh it is folklorically inaccurate yeah it, it does get in it's very well done one of my you might, favorite you might you might give the the title if people aren't familiar uh, and i'm trying to remember it isn't it just krampus it's either krampus or krampus not i can't remember yeah. I, I i don't either i've only seen it once um yeah. but and, and i don't actually have the film myself I don't either uh actually i got to go to the ghostbusters of the ozarks and uh, in christmas of 2019 and watch the film in their backyard oh cool which was really really fun so big shout out to ghostbusters of the ozarks they're awesome yes they are and but the uh, a lot of the the mis the misconceptions about the lore for krampus are encapsulated i don't think they're they're not mm, created by the film no but they, they are encapsulated by the film in that is santa's evil twin basically he's uh yeah. for those of you who are familiar with disney afternoon he's negaduck um the <laughs> huge darkling duck fan just throwing that yeah. out there mm -hmm. uh, late 1980s if i didn't get to watch disney afternoon i turned into negaduck much to my mother's <laughs> friend so <laughs> We wonder why you like Krampus. Yeah, I know. And that rather than rather than uh, mm, ra rather than a, a 
evil twin or uh, like the, the evil side of Santa, I, I think it's important to understand that it is a counterpart to Santa. Yeah. Um, that they that they balance one another, kind of like the the Batman and Joker. Yes, I think that's <laughs> excellent with a with an interesting love hate relationship. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and and honestly, what would Joker be without Batman? Um, and vice versa, and yeah, and uh... <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I just figured out what happened. We we separated, we separated Santa from Krampus, and what happened? Santa got fat. <laughs> I don't even know what I don't even know what to say to that. So fair, fair. <laughs> but. <laughs> And and for anybody who you're left me speechless, that doesn't happen often. <laughs> anybody who wants to follow the analogy through, without Joker to keep Batman on his toes, Batman would get fat. So fair. And it's hard to fight crime that way. So there you fair. go. Um, <laughs> but but something that we do see is, of course, there, there's a lot of really interesting layers of generational lore associated with Santa Claus. Yes. And the older iconography of Santa Claus, and I'm, for, for popular culture reasons, I'm just going to refer to him as Santa Claus, as opposed to the many different names associated with Santa Claus. Yeah. That mm, post-war Krampus absent Santa is consistently happy and jolly and round and never has a bad day. Mm-hmm. But if you if you start digging into the iconography of earlier versions of Santa, he is not round. He is uh, powerful but shrouded oftentimes a little terrifying. I still remember the first time that I went into a, it was actually, it was actually the Covered Wagon Craft Store in Chillicothe, Illinois, and they had a series of traditional European Santas hand-painted. Mm-hmm. And my mom looked at him and was like, uh, he's scary. And, and she was right. Uh, Santa of that era, of those, those previous older generations, was a little terrifying at times and you can make some and we will some important cross ties to odin Mm -hmm. with with that tie-in uh or woten if you're germanic and that at this point this juncture point the companionship of for example woten and krampus start to make more sense mm-hmm. agreed that and then as as this alpine lore became christianized mm-hmm. then we start seeing an overlay of 
Christian cosmology in terms of how do we make these existing characters fit? Right, which I mean, and is certainly not isolated to these characters that happened to oh, no. a number. <laughs> pretty much all of Europe. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And, and, and I, I also, it's perhaps a little simplistic, but I still love to joke that Krampus really tells us everything we need to know about the German psyche. And I say that as being having a lot of German heritage myself, that in, in, in other uh, bits of lore, if you're a naughty child, Santa might give you a lump of coal. And in the case of Krampus, if you're a naughty child, Santa just hands you over to Krampus and Krampus is, and I'm going to use the post-Christian iconographic overlay in what I'm about to say, which is Santa hands you over to Krampus and Krampus is a goat-headed demon who whips the child, wraps them in chains, throws them into his own satchel and then packs them off to hell never to be seen again. So don't be naughty. Yeah. You know, be good little boys and girls. <laughs> yes. The, and and uh, Krampus appears not to be, you know, gender discerning. He seems just like with, uh, right. with Perta. It's uh, if you are lazy and bad, the punishment is going to be severe. And, and there's parallel, you know, you can see sort of uh, some similarity between those two characters as well. Oh, know, very they, much. They serve, they serve same purposes in some ways. Um, they, they do. Uh, and... Whereas, but Krampus is, I think, intended to scare before the fact more. <laughs> yes. And who wouldn't be? Krampus is often uh, accompanied himself is is has his own entourage of mm -hmm. forest spirits mm -hmm. and the the at a point of convergence uh Berkta really does in many ways personify mother maiden crone mm -hmm. in in various aspects and a, a more beautiful aspect of her uh personage is associated weirdly enough with bees Mm -hmm. the the idea that in the in the dead of winter if you hear the sound of swarming bees which of course bees are not going to be out swarming in the dead cold of winter but the the iconography of their imagery of this is that it the bees the sound of the bees herald Berkta and there is a a forward-looking aspect that essentially paying homage to Berkta will allows you to look forward into the coming spring, into the light right. of dawn, into the future. Right. Uh, Krampus Where, doesn't have that. No, no, they're, 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 Krampus is the here and now. <laughs> Krampus is, is the here and now. And Krampus is also um, very associated with ancient fertility festivals. Yes. And, along with the entourage of Krampus. Yes. And that and that is associated. So that there's there's a lot of essentially in, from a very traditional standpoint, uh, very ribald um, festivities associated with the coming of Krampus. And and I think that 
it, it effectively speaks into the human experience and in some ways may, emphasis on may, structure and encapsulate natural human uh, you know, processes and urges in a way that if you simply ignore them, they, they may not have an effective uh, outlet. Yes, you know, and, and I think I think that that you know that that is that is um, actually one of those ironies of modernity is that we we feel that we are more cosmopolitan and open and so on and so forth, but in a very real sense, we don't talk about those things near as much as they as in the past. I mean, it's it's like the sort of the um, image of the Victorians as being prudish, which is actually just the opposite. Um, and, but it seems as we go along that we, we repress uh, that side of human nature, um, telling ourselves that we're sophisticated and that it's part of being modern, but, um, there are consequences and, and, and some of the things that we uh, complain about in society are consequences of ignoring these things. It which is. Which Krampus doesn't. <laughs> no. And that's one of the things that I, it, it's, it's why Krampus is one of my favorites. Uh, and Krampus really faces these fears and these issues head on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, unflinchingly, and it's kind, kind kind of like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre of European lore. I, I think that is very very effective. I think that is very fair. And as we were talking, it, it reminds me a little bit about a, a character that we do not have on on our notes, uh, but is one one of my personal favorites is the Mari Lloyd. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the Welsh, the singing Welsh horse skull. Yes. In, in a shroud mm -hmm. that gets drunk and goes door to door singing things. Caroling. Yes, yes. A very interesting and effective aspect of caroling. And also, uh, you know, we're, we're coming off of Halloween, but I think this reminds me of something was having having conversation actually during the last um uh farmer's market with with an individual who made what i think is a very astute point saying we always talk about how the the current generation of youth are the the worst so to speak without looking back that it wasn't that that halloween of not very many generations ago was full of actual pranks mm -hmm. that uh, could take a pretty you know move transition very quickly into severe vandalism yes and and damage you mm -hmm. know and and to the point that a, a much more and, and we're talking 1950s 1940s 1930s you know the the good old days yeah. when everyone was supposed to be super buttoned up and really ethical and the idea that that 
not in some cases not giving out treats at, at Halloween might have real consequence. Exactly. And again, that's something that isn't even contemplated now. No. And, you know, trick-or-treating is, is one of my favorite times. I always make a point to stay home and hand out candy and, and all the, and since, you know, I've been here in this neighborhood since 2012 mm -hmm. uh, and every single kid who's ever come to my door has been like the nicest oh yeah that you could possibly imagine and that includes all the way up to the teenagers on dates which I'm like here have some more candy uh, I'm, I'm one of those people that, <laughs> <laughs> that is, I just I think the, the entire um, the entire concept is really awesome and what honestly like if you're a couple of teenagers and your date night would be to be trick-or-treating like you were kids I honestly think that's like the sweetest thing in the world just throwing that out there I mean I do too I mean and people who who think that teenagers shouldn't I think it, I think it's kind of foolish same token I think if if you know when a little kid if kids said or a teenager said trick-or-treat and you said no treat I'm not sure how many now would even know what the what okay now what <laughs> right right <laughs> that, that there, there, there yeah. is a social contract there that uh, you know that it has to be a treat and the even the uh idea that someone doesn't adhere to that just elicits a does not compute response at this point and and again, it's not that long ago that, uh, you know, people had their houses torn up, you know, vandalism, et cetera. Outhouses, outhouses tipped over, moved into. Yeah, I, well, I, I, just, I saw a story um, in the last few days for Halloween, and it was a clipping from a newspaper. It, it was 1907, and this, this, ha this happened, they had actual photos of it that um, as, a, as a trick, um, teenagers had put wagons on top of seven different houses. And I think it was somewhere in Ohio, if I remember right. And, <laughs> and, the, article was, and the article was, you know, uh, wondering how in the world they managed to do that, but it was done. <laughs> So, and the idea of someone putting your car on top of your roof. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of positives to our modernity if we can mm -hmm. manage to keep ourselves from becoming self-encapsulated yeah. in, in, in simplicity. I agree. Um, solstice, the Yule. Oh, well, of course, we're on the countdown. Yes. We are absolutely on the countdown to, to the solstice, the, the, the winter solstice, which is December 21st, approximately. Mm -hmm. And there, there's an enormous amount of lore probably we'll, we'll continue this discussion more there, there's a vast body of lore associated with this yeah but 
it is the, the essentially the death of the sun mm-hmm. and then the rebirth of the new sun and i don't know you know a lot of parallels there to ancient samaria ancient egypt and um you know that people probably don't want to think about but um and it goes to you know part of that goes to the fact that there was a lot of interaction between societies even thousands of years ago and then how they ended up interpreting each other's lore gives us a rich a rich mythos it does and one of one of the benefits slash risks that we take in terms of analysis is how closely we interpret those connections as opposed to the risk of not tying any connection whatsoever. Right. I think there's a correlation. I think, of course, part of that correlation is that peoples all over the globe were very interested in uh, marking time, marking the seasons, progression of planets and stars, etc. And so part of it is coincidental. People notice the same things. But I think I think there's value to say there is a similarity in this culture story with this culture story because we tend to put everything into boxes and and nothing in this box ever affected that box and 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 that's not necessarily true either right it's i i think coming back to our, our our consistently appreciated and effective tagline sometimes there are no easy answers this really ties these are very very complex threads they they are but it is certainly a part of the dark winter it is and i remembered my tangent so i'm fixing to start a fight (laughs) (laughs) okay so i have no idea what's coming (laughs) i know you don't Uh, it's not in our notes so (laughs) and i'm 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 actually approaching this from a fairly open mind but at the same time questioning how simplistic the connections are beginning with the 1930s into 1940s Gardnerian Wicca and its association with something that is consistently associated with uh, British the British foundations of Wicca is Celtic the Celtic elemental cosmology yes which is appropriate i think considering its its origin points yeah at the, at the same time there is a constant tie-in uh, to the cult of diana mm-hmm. and a constant tie-in to hecate the mm-hmm. the goddess of crossroads yeah and on one hand you can make some effective arguments when you look at the impact of Roman Britain. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that 
if you are transitioning over to Irish as a, as a core, it is much more difficult to make those arguments because the Irish were consistently resistant to Roman influence. Yes, the same with the Scots. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, it was a... Was that an arrow I just heard across the Hadrian's wall? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, when you, when you look at traditional, and by traditional, I mean pre-Christian mm -hmm. Ireland and pre-Christian Scotland, to me, although you can assume there was some trade, it, yeah. is it is very difficult for me to conceptualize heavy religious cross-pollination of ideas into those spaces. Now, Southern yeah. Britain and Wales is obviously a very different story. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think you're absolutely correct and, and very much uh, analogous to Scandinavia. Um, you know, the, the inroads into Scan uh, Scandinavia by Christianity certainly came much later as well. Um, yes. And um, just the further north you were, it seemed that it, 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 there was a resistance. But and it that though those elements of resistance and the um, comparative isolation of mythos mm -hmm. makes me not want. Here's my. I'm, I'm. I'm getting to my point. Makes me not want to tie too neat of a connecting line oh i agree between what we think of as essentially celtic witchcraft uh and i say that term quite lovingly in relationship to old ireland and old scotland to for example the cult of diana or hecate and that yeah. it is something that i will throw out there as as a point of contemplation that don't my 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 point of reference is to say or point of introspection and reference is to say don't be too hasty to draw one-to-one -one ratio lines between these elements because we're dealing with highly sophisticated and semi-isolated cultures yes no. That's. I think that's. I. I, I think. I think that's as accurate as as we can be, and and makes the most sense when you look at it. That. So I'm. I'm actually rather. I'm, <laughs> I'm relieved by my own tangent. I was not sure where I was going with that. I, so. <laughs> there was a point in there, in the end. <laughs> there, there really was. So, and and, <clears throat> but I do. I. I consistently at times we'll see the these what i feel like are one-to-one -one ratios that are tying things like beltane to uh to honestly to to um ancient phoenician and canaanite yeah. religion and i i was listening to someone 
who kept repeatedly saying that and I'm going, I'm, I'm, I struggle to, to make that direct connective line. I agree. Now, now there certainly may have been a similar festival or a similar yes. rite uh, along the same time period of the year, but mm -hmm. yeah, a direct correlation um, is is kind of hard to hard to draw. And I think one thing too, people don't really. I think now usually when people think of Yule, they usually actually think of New Year's um, and New Year's Eve. Interesting. But, you know, um, yeah, I, I hear I've heard people discuss that, you know, um, but it really runs from the solstice until what, January 5th, 6th, 6th, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. To, what, yeah. to now. And, and something that's actually very handy mm -hmm. is that uh, the Catholic holiday calendar overlays on the, the old world pagan calendar. So, yeah. And we see that with we see that with Halloween, we see that with Epiphany, um, mm -hmm. uh, etc. And you know, I think that it in uh, Saint Nicholas Day yeah. as well, uh, etc. Mm -hmm. So lots of lots of correlative points on that. But in the larger sense, if people are saying why why is this happening at this time as opposed to that time? It is based on the celestial calendar. It is. It is. Now, it, it you know, some things have been shifted slightly, mm -hmm. um, observed at different times, um, particularly in the church calendar for various reasons, and a lot of it church politics, but, um, you know, but it is a good rule of thumb. Mm -hmm. And you know, so I think it's especially when we get into this portion of the year, and this might be kind of a, a decent place to begin to conclude, but a space, the the dark season mm -hmm. is autumnal equinox to winter solstice to vernal equinox. Yes. And the uh the 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 even point between autumnal equinox and winter solstice is halloween yes and the even point between winter solstice and vernal equinox is immol yes and so realizing that and, and you know how anyone wants to translate this is it is you know up to personal opinion but the reality is it it is it, it first of all it speaks to societies that were so very sophisticated as to understand exactly where the sun and the moon were exactly at any given time and that is unequivocal we have multiple locations, Stonehenge being one of the most obvious, but multiple ancient locations that are lined up as, as solar calendars. Yes. So and and it just makes the most sense too, I mean. Yes, and, and when an understanding of this cycle is what you're basing your survival on to know 
when to plant crops, when to, to have your livestock begin to calve. And this in your entire culture survival is based upon this. It becomes pretty obvious that it's important. Exactly. And coming around to kind of where we started about celebrating death and celebrating the dead, we have Alphabot and Disablot. Which I, I really love the Alphabot. And there, these are, again, coming back to something that seems to be very consistent with Northern European lore, which is the conflation of ancestor burial mound spirits with elves. Yes. And it, it, <laughs> it does take a sudden dark twist because now I'm going to throw this out there and the next thing I know I'm going to have inadvertently spawned an incredibly horrible cheesy Christmas horror movie which is Christmas elves and blood sacrifice I like it it's <laughs> <laughs> very true I mean um you know, because I think I think that I think that veneration of the dead is something that people don't really expect, and especially I, even as a rite of of winter. But that's what this was about. Um, and the, these two rituals one was ma was male, one was feminine, one mm -hmm. was sacrifice, and one was offering. Now, in our in our twenty first century Western assumptions we might assume that the male uh, ritual was the sacrifice and the female uh, ritual was offering but it was just the opposite actually <laughs> which, <laughs> which kind of led to the cruel the cruel winter queen very true and i think that's an interesting point uh of analysis i i the the idea, and this is, it is a somewhat shifting idea of the elves, mm -hmm. but one of the things that it seems to be very consistent is that the elves were powerful. Yes, and they were powerful. They also uh, commanded um, supernatural powers. Yes. And uh, certainly in enchanting powers over man and the the idea that that there is a close connection with the ancestors interestingly enough a close connection with fertility mm -hmm. and with blood yes and so, oh go ahead oh these are these are difficult themes quite frankly all three are difficult themes for modern people to wrap their heads around. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's it, not, begin, beginning it's with not that, nice and neat. No, it's, it's pretty messy, actually, as life is. And the, the terms Alphablot and, and Disablot, these appear to be, well, this is very Scandinavian. But yeah, Northman. And, I, and I'm saying it, you know, 
you know, we, we tend to say Norsemen, but the men of the North, basically. Yes, uh, but from what we can what we can ascertain currently with the mm, <laughs> the tradition of Christmas <laughs> Christmas elves in association mm -hmm. with uh, Northern Continental Europe as well as some Anglo-Saxon uh, lore. Mm, even though we're dealing the the contact the information that we have is specifically Norse Scandinavian Norse, it appears to have some cultural spread into yeah. continental Europe. Yes. And um, basically the, the Athelot, which was the, the male half of the, of, the, of, the, of these two ceremonies, was an offering of blood, often over burial mounds. Yes. Um, and, you know, there is some conjecture that at some point in the distant past that the the offering of blood was maybe a part of actual bur burial custom um, at some point and not just a uh, a seasonal ritual but then the sort of the yin and the yang the other right the, the distant block um, was a was a, a sacrifice um, and uh, it in particularly for, um, it was also known as the blood of blood to the elves at mm -hmm. times, but um, it was to appease the spirits of your home, of local spirits and ancestors' um, souls. Um, is is uh, the, these two ceremonies were were meant to honor and appease these groups. They are. And something that is really striking to me, this is heavily shamanic. Yes. And I guess it, it's we, and one thing I find interesting, too, is that with the Norsemen, the Northmen, that shamans typically were women. Correct and seers, which um, is often uh, common with all of Northern Europe. Seers in the Celtic tradition often were women. Um, then um, point and counterpoint, you have shamans in this tradition performing these, sac these sacrifices for the dead, for the spirits. And then when you travel a little further east, still very north, but northern eastern Europe, um, Santa Claus himself and shamans get intermixed and perhaps have an origin with each other. Yes, and that is, <clears throat> real, real quickly, a, a, as, I, as I'm reviewing the Alpha Blood and the Disa Blood, um, mm -hmm. giant screaming disclaimer, don't try this in thus you know what you're doing yes um that one that one is really really important to do and second there, there is a scandinavian connection because as you're referencing the many of the elements of the, the imagery associated with 
modern day Santa Claus are associated with potentially the Sami, the yeah. Northern Finnish uh, shaman practices. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then very similar things uh, over into the Rus, what we know as Russia. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and these typically would be male shamans, um, but they tended to have a certain look. Yes, and, and an appreciation for red. Yes, wore red, hats trimmed in white, and also some supposition that that is also an allusion to the fact that the shamans use psychedelic mushrooms. Yes, specifically the species of mushroom that is the red. cap is red with white, white dots. Yes, and often when they would come to a home to provide assistance to someone, um, they were associated with the chimney. Right. Was that was that associated in the sense of the the magic of the hearth? I I think I mean there 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 are some references that that they would they would arrive on the roof actually. Mm. Yeah. And, and so my, my, my guess would be that perhaps some, some of the ritual will be performed over the chimney in the mm-hmm. chimney smoke, but I don't know. That's just okay. conjecture. Uh, but but yeah, sources do indicate that sometimes they would arrive, that they would arrive and people would know they arrived because they would be on the roof. Right. This is Santa Claus arrives in his sleigh on the roof. Yes. <laughs> and of course, reindeer. In, in, in uh, Finnish Lapland in northern yes. Russia. Yes, and you just hope the reindeer were eating the mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which or might be why. Hallucinogenic <laughs> 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 reindeer. <laughs> do your reindeer fly? They're positive they do. Yes, just ask them. <laughs> just ask them. <laughs> But I think I think a lot of people would be surprised to at the notion that, you know, uh, our jolly elf Santa Claus has a lot more to do with magic and shamanism than uh, Christmas carols. That is true. That is true. And it is also fair that and as i think that we we we've noted we'll continue to note throughout this season is that i i i love this stuff uh, is that so much of uh the american christmas tradition is informed by many many different strands of ancient european culture specifically ancient european culture Yes, and particularly Northern European. Uh, agree, very much so. And there, there are consistent elements, Scandinavian, German, uh, or Germanic, um, Finnish, Anglo-Saxon, and, uh, and, and to some degree Celtic mm-hmm. um, bits and pieces, particularly in terms of mistletoe. Um, I, Throwing that out, the, the, the Celts gave us uh, veneration and mistletoe. So, yep. 
That's true. <laughs> that might be a, a fairly good place to, to kind of end that for today. But we yes. want to remind everyone, don't forget to check out upcoming events at paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping bring the Dark Ozarks to everyone. And on our next episode, we're going to be discussing what's scary. Uh, this is our send-off to Halloween. So tell us what you think is scary in the Ozarks, now or in the past, paranormal or not paranormal. And we want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks. <laughs>